bad ones. I'm your super niche famous for screwing around on the internet host, Cam Harless. And joining me tonight as my co-host is Taylor Swift's biggest fan, Mr. Zachary Cooper, a.k.a. The Muted Flag. How you doing, buddy? This is the way. <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing well. I should have just left it at this is the way. You just you just let that become part of your identity, please. Don't argue. <laughs> yes and me. And then we'll we'll move on. <laughs> oh man. That I mean, don't get me wrong, as a Marine, I always thought it was really funny listening to Marines like uh, getting out of the gym and going going into the showers on ship and they would be rocking out to some girl rock like Katy Perry and Taylor Swift and it's really funny. But as far as me, uh, yeah. <laughs> That sounds about right. Anyway, snack on some crayons, listen to some Taylor Swift. Mm. All right. Mm. So before we get to it, I do want to let everyone know that this show is 100% brought to you by fans and patrons. So hit like, subscribe, and share the show with your friends. We've we've covered all sorts of topics, some very dark, some very light, in all places in between. Um, but share if you see an episode and you're like, oh, hey, that's something that will help me watch it. And if you think, oh, my friend could probably listen to this, share it with them. That's the only way that I'll be able to grow this show. Um, also, if you're a patron, if you go to patreon.com slash the mad ones, you can actually get an extended episode every week of this show in what we call last call after the first hour. Um, so you also may get early episodes. This next week's episode on Tuesday is going to be an early one. So if you're a patron, you get to watch that two days early. So like I said, patreon.com slash the mad ones. And also, if you'd like to grab a one of the mad ones shirts, one of my Cairo shirts, a mug, a <laughs> AI presidents with mullets poster, whatever. You can go to wearethemadamones.com slash store for that. Housekeeping's done. Let's do the show now. Um, joining us tonight is a heretic of the highest order or the lowest of the atheist, depending on who you speak to. He was once down with Calvin and his tulips, but he's left them in the dust. A man with a firm distaste for, for Augustine and a pebble in James White's shoe, Mr. Warren McGrew. Mm. <laughs> hey guys, how's it going? Thanks for having me on here. The the inimitable breaker of Calvinist chains, thorn in the side of all of those who preach uh, the sovereign foreordinated. You know, God bless you, man. It's good to see you. Well, thank thank you. I, I, pre I appreciate the uh, the kind words and and uh, the hype there. I I, uh, I don't mm. know how to respond, but thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's amazing. See, see, and this is this is why when you said just say this guy, I'm like, no, no, no introductions are my thing if you're not mm. somewhat flustered after i do it i've done it wrong well i'm, so. I'm definitely flustered I, and, and <laughs> I, I'm, I'm extremely complimented thank you so much mm. <laughs> well i'm i'm excited to talk to you because this is this is actually our third try because i've had we had weird stuff happen on my end twice before and uh I, when i was talking i actually heard of you through mine and zach's mutual friend uh izzy 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 centric mm -hmm. um and it was when he told me that you were once Calvinist and aren't anymore, my ears perked up. Because for, for one thing, most people that I've met who go down the Calvinist road never get off of it. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, you're not going to hear from someone who's ex-Calvinist for the most part. But also, I really appreciate when someone holds to one idea theology ideology or whatever and then shifts to something that's the complete opposite in some cases because i think that there's a way to explore both how they were convinced and then how they were unconvinced and so that really fascinates me so i've been excited to talk to you and the moment i told 
uh, Zach that uh, I was going to have you on the show. He was like, I'm doing that episode. I'm going to guest co-host <laughs> with you that episode. That one's mine. And I, I think Izzy wanted to fight him over that one, honestly. He probably did, but he would lose. <laughs> a pretty big dude. Um, just a quick background there. And uh, this is going to be more flustering for Warren. Uh, Warren uh, has and, and some of the guys that he teaches and, and has been a uh, uh, mayonnaise on fries, really. That's it's a Holland thing. But um, but Warren and some of the guys that he is friends with have you. you I've, it's such a pleasure to sit down and talk with you face to face, man, because you've had a profound impact on me. Your ministry mm-hmm. has had a profound impact on me. Uh, we actually met you and I a few years ago. We were in Matt Slick's, uh, Matt Slick, who you debated, who is a big Calvinist apologist, right? Mm-hmm. And not a very good one. Is he really anyway, um, connected to Carm? He is. He is the he's the owner of Carm, isn't he? And um, but at any rate, we met in his apologetics group, and I was getting so flustered because the, I was fresh out of the Marine Corps. I didn't have really a, a big theological foothold, right? And uh, I didn't understand, like, why are these, what is this, why are these Calvinists fighting with other Christians? And then you shot me a message and you were like, oh, well, this is the problem with the doctrine of the original sin. So naturally, as somebody who didn't know much about Augustine yet, I was like, oh, what? You're, you're saying there's no such thing as original sin? And But you were trying to very nicely explain to me like, oh, well, this is why they are that way, right? And I remember I flamed at you hard, I think. I flamed at you quite hard, but uh, then Josh LeBrant, who is a friend of ours both, uh, basically he talked me into giving me his phone number, called me, and he said, look, I'm a former Southern Baptist pastor, and he really walked the dog with me and exposed me to uh, the ancient faith and exposed me to uh, the problems with Augustine and how Augustine is such an innovator. And, uh, and that's how, when you and I became friends on Facebook. And uh, it's been my pleasure to know you ever since, man. And, uh, man, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, when, when somebody says I, I encountered you on the internet, my first <laughs> response is I am so sorry. Uh, you know, well, like, I'm, I the flamed, hope... I'm the one who flamed. Okay. I am. <clears throat> okay. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, was, um, it, it was a foundational, like a, a, a landmark moment in – uh, modern Western Christianity was this this concept that Augustine, you know, uh, officially formented, uh, formatted, and, and presented, and and uh, we can get into that more later on. But yeah. that's the that's a very common reaction when somebody says you you don't believe yeah. in original sin, like <laughs> you're a you're a Christian. I go, hey, there's a lot of us. There's a lot of us. The history is very mm-hmm. rich. It goes all the way back to Genesis. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, we can get into that more, but uh, thank you for the kind words. I'm, I'm glad I did not uh, offend in the wrong way. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> and it was Josh who got us to start talking to each other. And uh, like I said, very impactful, well, very impactful. I do want to get into um, total depravity slash original sin because, like I said, so um, a lot of people I know, I have friends who are Calvinist and like we we don't talk about Calvinism. They probably wouldn't know that I would vehemently disagree with them about most of that, if not uh, really all of it. I remember one time I was talking to my friend David and he, he goes, he, he, our friend Nick is like staunchly five point Calvinist across the board. Like he's, he's that guy. He's like cage stage, never gave up kind of guy. Um, and, uh, uh, my, my friend, uh, David was like the only 
um, part of Tulip that I can agree with is the um, total depravity part. So I just I'm I'm, a, I'm I've got the T in Tulip. He goes, oh, you're you're a, a fifth Calvinist, and I was like, well, I'm a Z, I can't do any of it. And this was when I was like tw maybe 22 or something, where like I for to, for explanation of where I'm coming from, I was never Calvinist. I've never had that Nor I. in me. Um, I my parents they were saved as part of the Jesus movement. They came out of the 70s, like they they went right into. I wouldn't even say Arminianism because we wouldn't have even called it that. It's just Christianity. Mm -hmm. We you know of course they had some idiosyncrasies and some stuff that. Uh, I ended up disagreeing with and, and working through later, but I've never been a Calvinist and I've been arguing why well, I've stopped arguing in recent years. Um, but I've been arguing with Calvinists since I was probably 12 years old because it didn't make any sense to me. I can't wrap my mind around the, this and I couldn't wrap my mind around total depravity when I knew that there are mothers out there who can love their children, right? Like, and love is good them taking care of their children is a human good. How could that be total depravity? And of course, there are all these conversations around it. And I feel like word games to kind of get you caught. Mm -hmm. But if we could, I think maybe for those who aren't Calvinists who are listening, what does this mean? Is Calvinism just Christianity? What does it outline? What did you believe before you left Calvinism? So Calvinism um, has benefited from uh, hundreds of years of uh, fine-tuning their propaganda and their message. It's, it's a very well-oiled machine. You'll hear quotes from like Spurgeon where they'll say, Calvinism is nothing more and nothing less than the gospel. And you go, oh, well, I believe the gospel. I must be a Calvinist. Right. No, no. Um, it, it, is a, it is a particular um, uh, a systematic approach to the text of scripture through an Augustinian anthropology where you presuppose a whole lot of stuff that the average person has no idea what it means or it entails. And there, if you, it, there's, there's so much that has to be brought to the text. But essentially, um, and I'll give you a very quick rundown. Essentially, the ancient Hebrews held a view where we have God-given drives and appetites that we're blessed with. Uh, and these were given to us before Adam's fall, and God called them good. Uh, appetites for uh, food, right? But we can not rule over that. We can give ourselves over to gluttony, you know, hashtag dad bod, you know, I mean, it happens. You can also have this proclivity to be intimate and start a family. And, and that's good and godly when used as God intended. But you can also surrender to that appetite and let it rule over you. And you can commit all manner of sexual sins, you know, you can go crazy. And, and so, the ancient Hebrews had this view of the desire of the appetite as God-given. They had the uh, drives and appetites of like the, the higher mind or the, the spiritual man, and they would call that the, the Yetzer Hatov. And then they had the more animalistic, like those desires and drives for survival and reproduction and that sort of thing. They would call the Yetzer Hara. They would call it the evil inclination. That's what Hara means. But it wasn't in the same sense that we would say it in Western Just Christianity. Boring that it was like somehow in and of itself sinful, but it was a desire that could lead to sin. Mm. And uh, and so you have that sort of view of, of the state of man until you get into the era of the Gnostics, um, and they would come in and they would say that sin is, is essentially like flesh itself, like it's a substance, that it is something that we are, that all of the material world is corrupted by it. 
And so when the Gnostics heard about Christ's incarnation, they were offended. They're like, you're going to tell me that God not only went into a woman's womb, but out the birth canal? Like that was blasphemous to them. You're going to tell me that God took on human flesh and soiled his diaper and nursed? Like they were like offended. How dare you? Like that is disgusting. And so early on in Christianity, there was this conflict. And even much of our, our New Testament is written in refutation of Gnosticism. Yeah. But um, over time, you start to see this battle between the Hebrew anthropology and something that we would call more, more Gnostic-ish, uh, where sin is a substance that is inherited. You start to see traducianism, which is this idea that we are the amalgam of our parents' flesh and their soul, and that we were in the loins, and, and pardon the language, but we were in the testicles of Adam when he sinned. And so we are essentially Adam, that that sin and guilt was imputed to us the moment he sinned. And so we enter into the world spiritually and dead. Vipers and diapers. Yes, yes, vadibakums, vipers and diapers. So we enter into the world in this um, spiritually dead, guilty uh, uh, state where we're deserving and under the wrath of God. Now, Augustine would say um, that when you baptize an infant, you're washing that off right. and you're regenerating them through the sacrament of baptism and you're ushering them into the kingdom of God and the family of God and unity with the church, which is the body of Christ. But he would also say there was no guarantee it would take. And so even some baptized babies would still go to hell because of this. They weren't part of the elect. They weren't part of God's chosen. And he was still free to determine who he wanted to save and who he didn't. And that's that's kind of an overview of Augustine's anthropology. And it was really pitted against this more historic kind of Ju Judaic sort of understanding of the, the view of man. And there's a whole lot of political intrigue that comes on the scene. We're talking Game, Game of Thrones type stuff that happens uh, between Constantinople, which was Rome of the East and uh, Rome of, of the West. And you have the man Augustine battling the, the man Pelagius and the schism continues and continues and continues until you get to the 1600s, 16th century with uh, John Calvin or, uh, or Johann Calvin. And uh, he is a, a French reformer. He's a huge fan of Augustine and he obsesses over Augustine and basically reformats and reinterprets Augustine's work through his own understanding and he starts to systematize in what he calls the institutes of the Christian religion. And he's, you know, rebelling against Rome and these excesses that he sees from Rome. But he still holds on to Rome's Augustinian anthropology and that Augustinian view of the work of God. And meanwhile, while all this is going on, guys, there's a little old church called the Orthodox out from Constantinople. You got the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, the Asian churches, the Coptic churches. And they never accepted Augustine's view because they actually could read and speak Greek. And what, what you'll find is when you start in investigating this, Augustine could not. And he misread and misunderstood and misinterpreted based off of a Latin translation of the Greek. And that helped feed this. And so I can get way deep into the weeds. I probably have already gone further than we should have. I'm a big original sin, total depravity geek. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, that's, that's my original sin. Let me, let me ask and, you something. Um, <clears throat> John Calvin, 
Um, my understanding or something that I was told in the past, and I haven't done a lot of study on John Calvin, the man, was that he was essentially a, a lawyer and thought mm -hmm. in terms of law. Is that yes. correct? And yeah, so he was a like, French lawyer. And so when I'm when I'm looking at his primary doctrines, which are uh, which total depravity, un, unlimited. What is it? I, I can never remember all of Tulip. <laughs> you've got you've got total depravity, unconditional election, limited, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance or preservation of the saints, depending on which flavor of Calvinism you're articulating. So in one of the, one of his big things as well was pushing this extremely law-based view of the atonement, which is penal substitutionary atonement, which is one of those things that I just, I fully bought in for most of my life. And then I started, I, I remember one day, and this is such a goofy way to like actually have this kind of fully shoved into my brain. I was watching an episode of The Chosen and it wasn't The Chosen that did it. It was seeing the 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 um the life of christ in order in this way kind of just enlightened something which was when he was going to heal the the lame man and he said your sins are forgiven mm. and the the pharisees like hey hey you can't do that and he goes you know is it easier for me to say pick up your mat and walk or to tell him that your sins are forgiven and he was like only god can forgive right and Jesus says, well, pick up your mat and, mat and walk. And he, he did that as well. And I saw that. And for some reason, the connection in my brain went, this was before the cross. So what it showed me in that moment, which is just, I could have read it in the Bible, just as I watched it on The Chosen, which is what I did right after I watched that episode. I came to the realization that God didn't need, Jesus, at that point in history, didn't need to die in order to forgive this man. That's exactly right. So why... Am I pushing this idea and, and, and holding on to this concept that in order for God to forgive us, he had to, to, you know, satiate his wrath on Jesus as the substitute for all of humanity? And so, like, I haven't, I haven't really gone much beyond that except to realize the fact that what we saw on the cross and what we saw with atonement is um, Christ's victory— over the over the evil one over the darkness over the thing over sin over what is destroying us over death and i had viewed it as this very law-based tit for tat eye for an eye system when in fact i should have been viewing it through the lens of love because you know, what was first john one tell me that god is yes. love and he and desires your view, mercy and your like, view meant that god in that model god does not forgive Right. There's no forgiveness in penal substitution. And yet the, the Old Testament is clearly 100% ignorant of that idea because the very word helaskomoi does not mean propitiation. It means it literally refers, or which is a helaskomoi, is literally the covering of God over sin. Yep, the literally, mercy seat, the covering. Covering, yeah. covering God covering over sin. Mm -hmm. So this is an idea that is not only, it's not just unbiblical, it's anti-biblical. It's a complete ignorance of the Old Testament. But we'll, well, we'll get into that in a little bit. The, the, the idea of penal substitution is really, you talk about the five-point Calvinists. Penal right. substitution is the sixth point. It's their atonement right. theory. So and I feel what, like the reason I mentioned it is because I feel like TULIP, in some ways, is all of that systematization was all about proving penal substitutionary atonement in some way. 
it, well, penal substitutionary atonement was a view of the work of Christ invented to defend Calvinism. So that's why it seems like it's pointing there. But it's the other if way you, around. If you, if you look at the anthropology of this or the, the development, uh, the evolution of these these doctrines, it begins with Augustine's view of the nature of man. And then you skip forward um, until you get to um, a, a roughly the uh, 1100 AD and you get to Anselm of Canterbury with his uh, Cure de Deo Homo, which is basically why the God man. And Anselm is trying to understand why God came. Now, it doesn't mean that the church didn't have an answer for the first thousand and one hundred years uh, of, of church history before Anselm. He just didn't like the answer. So the answers that we had before Anselm were that the incarnation actually had a purpose. It wasn't just so God could brutalize him on the cross, but it was that he assumed the totality of human nature, mm. our heart, our mind, our soul, our flesh, our will, as it is. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18, it says, He became like his brothers in every respect. Whatever the children of Abraham had in common, he picked up so that he could mm. intercede, redeem, and, and be a faithful high priest in the, the service of his people. And so we saw that the incarnation was a means of God restoring and healing and elevating. You get to uh, Athanasius uh, and his, his work on the incarnation. Athanasius says uh, that Christ was held up into the air with one arm outstretched to the Hebrews, one arm outstretched to the Gentiles to show everyone that he is drawing all men to himself, that he did so in the air to defeat the prince of powers of the air and to, to create a, a bridge from, from man to God, that God wasn't the problem, but it was us. It was we who needed to be reconciled to God, not God reconciled to man. Mm -hmm. You So you had several, uh, we, we wouldn't even use a, atonement theory because atonement means reparation for a wrong or an injury. And that only dates to about the time of the KJV, the King James Version. It doesn't exist. It's an English language word. It doesn't even have a, um, a precursor in Hebrew or Greek. Absolutely. So in the early church, we just had redemptive theories or redemptive models. We had recapitulation where God restores. We had ransom where he rescues us and delivers us, um, defeating suffering in the grave and the, 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 the devil and all of these, these adversaries that he heals us by assuming our nature. Um, so you had recapitulation, ransom. Um, you have something that we would call the, the restored icon model or Christus Victor. Yeah. Uh, then when you get into Anselm, Anselm comes in and goes, no, guys, look around, man. We got kings. We got lords, nobles and peasants. This is the kingdom of God right here. This is how he operates. And so he starts to filter the work of God through this medieval lens where if you were of a lower station in society and you offended someone of a more noble position, that nobleman could demand your death because you've You've robbed him of honor, so he would demand satisfaction. In the old in the old sword fighting movies, they take a glove off and slap the guy across the face and say, "I demand satisfaction," and that's how he viewed God. Was that God had lost honor because we had sinned against him, and he demanded that we suffer. And so that's how Anselm starts to view this. At the same time, you have um, a, a contemporary of his who comes in and goes, "No, no, no! God was showing us how to live." He was giving us this moral exemplar. He was teaching us what it meant to love and be loved. He was explaining and expounding on his teaching. 
So you had these two competing views in the 1100s. As you get into the Reformation era, they really begin building heavily on Anselm's satisfaction theory, but it wasn't formally articulated until 1871 when Charles Hodge wrote his work, Systematic Theology, which came out 40 years after Mormonism. So penal substitution has a very rich history going all the way back to Augustine, but it did not reach its fulfillment and culmination. There's like 17 points comprising that doctrine, and they did not culminate until 1871. Wow. After after the Civil War. Yes. Crazy. That is extremely young. Isn't it's kind it of like funny? dispensationalism, which when did that come into play? Um, oh, um, what was that? That was uh, Schofield? The 1900s, wasn't it? Yeah, Schofield, 18, I think. Yeah, Schofield. Those are the really, yeah, 1900s was Schofield, but really it had its its birth in the 1800s with, with Darby, right? So Darby was a, one of the big, big backers, but he was an yeah. 1800s guy. I, I believe so. That's an area version. That's an area I've not delved at. So dispensationalism, isn't it funny? That all that stuff is all, you know, like uh, Wolverine was around till the 1960s. They needed to write something crazy. They wrote a whole, they wrote a great backstory from the 1980s. And then in the 2000s, they wanted to make some more money. So they did a giant retroactive continuity. Penal substitutionary atonement is the product of massive amounts of retroactive continuity with the church saying, this is what I've been given. And I'm going to, uh, Thomas Aquinas is the golden chain. He didn't know any better. (laughs) He can be defended somewhat based on his ignorance, but he absolutely did. There was a significant retroactive continuity to build this Augustinian and Anselmian view that he is an inheritor of against the Bible and against, and that's going to scandalize some people, and I don't care about that, and against the early church. Uh, they had enough knowledge of the early church to know that this this was just not the way they well, thought of things. I, I think I think I think they should have known better, but I also I also think that their bias and their presupposition made them see things that weren't quite there. Yes. So like you can you can read the writings of John Chrysostom and he gives an analogy of a king who uh, gave up his son to suffer the guilt and wrath uh, or the, the guilt and judgment, excuse me, of a convicted criminal. And his, his analogy there sounds like to modern listeners, it sounds like it's articulating penal substitution. And we've had proponents of PSA point to that. The problem is, is that that wasn't what the illustration was intending to convey if you read the context. And you have people who live and breathe the early church fathers who never, never got PSA out of their work. Yeah, uh, it just it, 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 it required a particular evolutionary chain of doctrinal developments that were unique to the West in order to arrive there. And so now what you have are these neo-Western, uh, typical, you know, evangelical reformed kind of guys. And they will say, this is the heart of the gospel. Right. And if you deny penal substitution, you deny the gospel and you're going, hold up. If we want to be charitable, you've just said, let's say we're not being charitable. There were no Christians prior to 1871. Charles Hodge. Right. Let's let's say there were no Christians prior to Anselm 1100. The, the, the bedrock of PSA is Augustinian anthropology, which came about in the uh, the, the late 400s. So we're, we're going to say for the first four or five hundred years of the church, there was no gospel. But these are these are propaganda slogans designed to defend a doctrine uh, from, let's just say, less than 
robust means of going to scripture and looking at history. It, what it is, is it, it's basically to cry you down, to shame you into acceptance rather than to just go, you know what? Hey, like if, if you have a, a here in a PSA and they say, look, I, I take everything you're saying, Warren, I still think it's biblical. Well, that would be a fair discussion to have because then we could consider the merits. We could consider progressive revelation. We could sit back and go, okay, you, you recognize it's a, a recent invention, but you, you think that this is a good companion to redemptive models. Let's have that conversation. But most of its apologists don't go that way. They say instead it is the heart of the gospel. And in doing so, they mislead many and they cause unnecessary division. Two funny things about that. One was that a guy came into Izzy Centric's comments and he said, he's a Catholic guy. He said, if you deny Augustine, you deny Christ. And I was really quick with that one. I said, okay, that's cool. I didn't know that Acts 4.12 was, uh, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, could refer to both Jesus Christ and Augustine. Mm. That's freaking heresy. I'm, I have no, that's completely heretical. Yeah. And the second part, which I thought is so funny, um, which you mentioned is that it's a deflection. It's it's a complete, don't, don't look at the man behind the curtain, Wizard of Oz, right? They don't want, they, they've, They've significantly written little articles to try and cherry pick the history of the faith, just like they cherry pick the Bible in this, because they don't want to, they don't want people, they want people to recognize this as a cornerstone because they think without this, the whole rest of the, the whole rest of the thing falls apart. They're, they're presupposing a dilemma and they're inventing a solution and they go, don't question the solution because what do we do about this dilemma? But the question is, is, is that really a dilemma? Is that it's really false, the heart of the problem? Dilemma. Just Big begging, begging the begging the question. It is um, the, the philosophical term is a false dilemma, right, or a false yeah. dichotomy, because yeah. it's saying you must choose A or you must choose B, and you're like, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to have a yeah. bologna sandwich instead, and well, they don't realize that bologna sandwich option C is an option. Yeah. So what's well, it's like I've I've heard many Calvinists tell me that if you didn't don't believe in the doctrines of grace then you don't believe the gospel that is the gospel justification is the gospel mm. and uh scott mcknight jesus wrote a book called the king jesus uh gospel which is i think worth reading um but he one of the things that he pointed out is um they have distilled the gospel into um just salvation to suit soteriology rather than the the whole bible the whole book the whole of the good news it's just this act of commitment that you partake in that is that is the god the story that leads to that it just in the gospel accounts that you can't in, find in, the good news elsewhere in, in in western christianity and i say that meaning uh from rome through the reformation that's what we mean it's not like all the christians out in california but western christianity is right. is that roman lineage um, what you find there is a, uh, a particular view of a problem that is completely foreign to the early church. And there is this fear that they have to protect that problem because they've so come to conflate it with Christianity, they can't tell the difference. And in my own experience, when I was coming out of Calvinism and I read the Bible and it wasn't there, I thought, I may not be a Christian at the end of this. Yeah. I was terrified. Yeah. And, I, and I was crying out to God. I go, what do I do? And he goes, well, you're crying out to me. That's a good start. And I go, okay, well, that, that's a fair point. <laughs> that's a fair point. But like one of the things that I've had to do, and this is very difficult, is I've had to set aside my list of 1,001 
presuppositions and propositions you have to affirm to be a Christian and instead say, you have to trust and follow Christ. And that's, that, that's the sure foundation. And there are a few things that go along with that. Who is Jesus? You know, what did he do? There's a few things there that go along with that. But like as a, as a Trinitarian myself, as I've started studying the early church, there, we have church fathers writing saying most of the laity were modalists. And they were bemoaning that they didn't understand the Trinity. But they weren't saying they're not saved because they're modalists. They were saying, oh, these ignorant laity, right? We're, we're so much smarter than them. We wish they would get it. But over time, especially like subsequent Nicaea, there were even modalists at Nicaea, but subsequent Nicaea, that schism between modalists and Trinitarians became more and more, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, adversarial. And so now if you're a Trinitarian, they go, oh, those modalists aren't Christians. It's like, well, well you, you can disagree with their understanding of how Christ is related to the Father, but they're not denying that he's divine. So one of the things that I often have to do is, is take my fellow Trinitarians to task and go, hold let's be a little more charitable. They're not denying Christ. They just don't understand him in the diagram that you're asserting they understand him through. They're still seeing him as divine. Let's just, let's just stop that for a minute and be charitable. And what happens is, is we forget discipleship. We think that the mm. moment you come to Christ, you should have all of your doctrine perfect and that you should be completely regenerated and sinless. And it's this, still this kind of Gnostic view of divine gnosis and enlightenment. And that's just not reality. Yeah. That's just not reality. But the, the more that we operate like that as a church, the more we can, we take our young converts and we send them out ill-prepared and that's why you see more and more deconversions. It's why you see sin abounding in the church. And it's because there's not this discipleship and we're not being patient and we're not being mature believers and walking people through these, these, not just, let me explain why we like what these propositions are, but let me explain why we arrived here. Let's work on this together. Let's do the thinking together. And instead, we tell Christians today, relegate your thinking to dead bearded dudes. They've already done all the heavy lifting, and we're wandering around blind and aimless. Yeah. Well, and then that, that was one of the big points of uh, that book that I mentioned, Scott McKnight's book. And he made a point, and he goes, I'm, I know I'm going to offend people by this, but I don't think the word Christian is quite right for these people. They should be called soterians because that's all that they, they're worried about is, is soteriology, the, the understanding of salvation, the act of salvation. They're not worried about the rest of it. And I was just like, mm. what, strong words, brother. That's that, that, but it hits. Um, but yeah, let, let's, I, I do want to back up and go through your story a little bit if we can. So sure. um, what did you believe and what motivated the change? You said, you said you read the Bible. Um, I don't know if there's more to it than that, but where were you? Like, what, what would you say convinced you of Calvinism before, or was it just blind acceptance? Um, well, I would say that I was the frog in the boiling water. Okay. So I was born into a family of high or even hyper Calvinists, which we would believe, you know, that God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. I, I would call it, a con I would call it a consistent Calvinism, but I was born into a Calvinist family. My dad was a Calvinist. My mom was a Calvinist, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, we went to Calvinist churches. As a little kid, I went to Calvinist summer camp and I painted little tulips, you know, the T-U-I, the L-I-P, but I'd paint the flower on little t-shirts to take home and show mom, you know, and we had to learn the five points. And um, 
so very, very um, early on indoctrinated into Calvinism. In uh, about second or third grade, my dad ran off with an interior decorator and he thought it was the will of God and there's nothing I could do otherwise. And I said, dad, do you think you're saved? And he goes, well, I don't know. I don't know, son. <clears throat> and, you know, second to third grade, I'm weeping because my dad is like, he's going to go start another family with, with this, you know, he, <laughs> this is in the eighties. He bought a sports car. I, I tell this story to add a little bit of humor because it is funny now. And he eventually repented, came to faith and we had a really good relationship for many years before he passed. But he went and he bought a, um, this is an 87. He bought a uh, uh, a 300 ZX with the T-tops. Had the cell phone bolted to the floor with the wire, you know, uh, the little cord. Car phone. He grew his hair out in the back and had it permed. So he had like that David Hasselhoff permed mullet, you know. And, um, and then he would wear his leather jacket. He'd listen to Phil Collins and UB40, you know, red, red wine. And he's out there, you know, with his, with his girlfriend and he, he's trying to recapture something that he, he felt he'd lost or had missed out on. And it, looking back on it, it was rather comical, you know, comical. When you're a kid, you see your dad doing this and I can still smell the leather of that jacket and I associate it with abandonment. <laughs> it's like it's ingrained <laughs> in my it's ingrained oh. in my psyche, man. You know, I still see that greasy, curly hair and I, I just go like. You know, that, that's not somebody that I can hug. You know, there's still that kind of woundedness there. But when he checked out on us, uh, our Calvinist pastor and elders came over and they're, they're comforting my mom, you know, and she's just bawling. And I'm sitting there on this velour 1980s couch, you know, that was blue with little flowers on it, kind of like a tulip. And I'm sitting there and the pastor comes up and He's heartbroken. Like the, the man was genuinely heartbroken over my dad's sin and what he did to our family. And he puts his hand on my shoulder and I look up at him and he's like, looks down at me and he said, son, I know you're hurting, but you just have to trust that God did this for a reason. And second grade, third grade year old me, I wanted to throat punch this pastor. Like, yeah. don't you dare blame God for my dad's sin. Like my dad is a jerk. He's being an a-hole. Like this isn't, this isn't cool. You know, th th this is this is my dad's sin. Don't remove that from him. Like it, it, it so offended me that he was almost making my dad like lose that culpability. I was just I remember being really angry. And I, I of course, you know, you're in second, third grade. You can't say anything. I just internalize and, you know, start crying and, and shivering. But over the years, I went from rejecting that on like an, a uh, primal sort of it, it violated the thumbprint of God on my conscience sort of way mm -hmm. to slowly being anesthetized into that because we kept going to Calvinist churches. And so by the time I'm in my early, my late teens, early 20s, I'm doing street preaching and I'm telling people, yeah, God condemns unelect babies to hell. Like, come on, like we're, we're born guilty and only the elect are going to go to, who are you, oh man, to talk back to, to God? So I, I went from... Uh, unless you're like one of these, you won't enter the kingdom of, of heaven to not being like one of those. Um, and so I, I kind of abandoned that innocence and got indoctrinated and swept up into this. But as I aged, I mellowed a little bit. I was still Calvinist. I had tried all the flavors of the Calvinist rainbow, infralapsarian, superlapsarian, high, low, mid. Maybe I'm not a four-pointer. Maybe I'm a five. Maybe I'm a master seminary, John MacArthur kind of Calvinist. No, I'm an R.C. Sproul kind of Calvinist. No, I'm a 
AW Pink classic Calvinist. But my son was born in 09 and I'm holding this little baby and I'm looking at him and I'm like, this is what, what a it diaper means in his diaper to be, a, <laughs> you know, yeah. I was like, you, you, you whore, I got to rebuke this thing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> rebuke the babies. But no, I was, I was like, this is what it means to love. And I'd only held this kid for, I'd known him for two weeks outside his mom's belly. And I was like, there is no way I would give him up for the entire world. Like, I'm sorry, you guys, you guys are going to hell if it meant me choosing between my son mm. and you jokers. I, I've only known him two weeks and there's no way I would make that call. There's no way I would make that call. And so I started to have to question like, well, why is that? Is that my sinful nature that, that I've got to, you know, suppress? Um, of course, what I was doing was anesthetizing my conscience and I wasn't listening to the very thing God gave me to tell me checks and balances, you're off basis here. But I'm loving this little baby and he fills up the nastiest of diapers and I lay him down and I dive into a mustard bomb that you would not believe. And I'm cleaning this kid up and I'm gagging and oh, I'm retching and I get him all cleaned up and he's screaming and crying and I hold him and I'm comforting him and I'm like, it's okay, son. It's okay. Daddy got you all cleaned up. It's okay, son. And I'm loving on him and he calms down and I'm not even away from the, the diaper changing area. I'm still standing there loving on him and that diaper starts rumbling again. And I'm like, you little viper in a diaper. You just filled this thing back up. <laughs> And so I hold him for a minute and I let him finish making the mess and I lay him down and I start to clean him up all over again. And he starts screaming. And I was like, it's okay, son. We just did this. Remember you made a mess. Daddy cleaned it up. I know it's not fun when I'm cleaning up your mess, but if I don't clean it up, it's going to get worse. And all of a sudden I was like, Lord, are you preaching to me right now? Like, I'm like this infant. Like I make a mess. You clean it up. I'm screaming the whole time, but I was still, I was still a Calvinist. But, but something in that experience shook me a little bit. And I remember thinking, well, I'm going to trust God that he'll, he'll, he'll save my child and any future children that I have. I have to trust him. But I don't know if they're among the elect. And, and how will I stand at judgment and watch my child thrown into the lake of fire because he was passed over from eternity? Is that a possibility? How would I respond to that? And that was troubling. And immediately I suppressed it and did not go back there. Did not want to think about that. Mm. And then 21 months later, we have our daughter and she screams for 10 months straight. And I'm like, okay, Viper in a diaper. I get it now. <laughs> and uh, then I realized, oh, I got to change her feeding schedule up. I got to wake her up a little bit earlier, put her to bed a little bit earlier. Did that for three days in a row. And she was an angel. And I realized... It was my parenting that was the problem. She was an amazing little baby. I just wasn't listening to her. And every time she cried, I thought it was that sin nature trying to manipulate me. And that I've been preached at that so many times. And I got kind of angry that I that I was seeing my child like that and that it, it caused me not to be a good father for 10 months. And I like the guilt that I still carry. I'm like she's she's 11 now and I still carry guilt over that. But I suppress it. And I move on. And two years later, we have surprise triplet daughters. Holy and cow. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, first two years, you're crying wet in a corner. You don't know where you are. You're shivering. <laughs> Your world is falling apart. They're, they're going to be nine soon. And it's the most precious relationships. You know, I love my children. But 
they were uh, preemie, not not hyper preemie, but they were still preemie. They came home with electrodes and helmets and footwear. And I, I stayed up all night, every night for about three months with them. So my wife could sleep during the night and take the day shift. I would take about two to three hours sleep at night, um, like between nine and, and, and 10 or seven and 10, stay up all night watching them. And then I'd get about an hour or two hours sleep in the morning and then go to work. And I did that for a long time. And I just got weary, physically ill from lack of sleep. And my wife came in and she said, hey, just so you know, it's Saturday because you look like you don't know where you are or what day it is. I'm taking the kids to my mom's house and the day is yours to do what you want. So I'm thinking like, go see a movie, go see a UFC fight, hang out with my friends, play some board games, video games. No, I'm, I'm going to nap. I'm exhausted. So I go upstairs and I see my Bible and I go, Lord, I haven't spent much time with you. So just out of guilt, I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to read this thing. I'm going to give you five minutes and then I'm hitting the pillow. Like, like I, I'm going to do the right thing, but you're not getting much of me. And I open my Bible. I don't know where to read. And I get to the Gospels and I see where the Pharisees are calling Christ demon possessed. And I get angry and I'm like, oh, you blasphemous Pharisees. But immediately I knew they were blinded by their presuppositions of what they thought the Messiah was going to be like. So me, in my infinite wisdom, right, sarcastically, I was like, you you dumb Pharisees. But, you know, you were blinded by your presuppositions. And I'm like, I'm that can never happen to me. And then I was like, but could, could it? God, like, Jesus, if you came in my room right now, would I recognize you? Yeah. Do I have any presuppositions like that? I was like, Lord, if I'm blinded by presuppositions I'm reading into the text, how would I know it? Because mm. I, I, I'm doing it unaware. And if some guy comes up and shows me, how would I know that he's telling me the truth and I'm not being deceived? I was like, you know, Calvinists, we don't believe in like miracles or that God actually is is active like the charismatics would have you believe but in that moment i was like you know lord i need you to i need you to show me something here i don't need like some divine revelation or but i need something in the word and i, I would i would need i need something i thought i was asking to become a better calvinist but i felt like god was just telling me hey, well just start over warren now it wasn't an audible voice it wasn't like some sort of burning in the bosom but it was just this impression where you know what you have presuppositions, start over. So I, I flip back to Matthew. And before I get there, I, I really feel I need to go to Genesis. And as I started reading Genesis forward, total depravity came crashing down. Omitted from, from chapter three, which details all the consequences of Adam's sin. Yeah. And it's flatly refuted in Genesis chapter four with God talking to, to Cain about Abel. And then it just kept continuing to wilt. So that's how I came out of Calvinism. It began with, with total depravity. It took about an hour and a half of studying the Bible. After that, I knew I wasn't a Calvinist anymore. I didn't know what I was. And that's when I began relearning the scriptures. Hmm. And you said you were um, you were scared that you weren't a Christian anymore. How long did that last? Yes. So when total depravity wilts, I'm like, if I wasn't, born possessing Adam's guilt and sinful nature. Why did you come? Why do we need Jesus? Like, I don't, I don't even know what the point of this whole thing is. What is it? Why, why do we need Jesus if I wasn't born spiritually, you know, damned or, 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 or guilty? And I was like, I, I don't even know if I'm a Christian because 
I'd so conflated Calvinism with with uh, with Christianity, and that that was a terror that gripped me. And at first, I wanted to suppress it, but I was like, I can't do that. I've been doing that my whole life. You know, I, I'll, I'll encounter these inconsistencies. I'll encounter these contradictions, and out of fear, I suppress it. So this is what I said. I said, Jesus, I, I still believe you're real. And you said you're the way, you're the truth, and you're the life. So I'm going to trust you at your word, but I'm not holding back anymore. I'm not going to leave the tough questions over here because I'm scared that I can't trust you with them. I've been not honoring you with my life this whole time. So I'm starting now. And if at any point during this, I bring you the tough questions, and it turns out you're not who you say you are, then I'm not following the truth anymore. I got to leave, but I trust you are who you say you are. So I'm going to do the right thing and bring this to you, trusting that there's going to be an answer. And every time I did that, I was like, what? This is great. Like, <laughs> this is so much better than I thought. Like, why was I so fearful? And he's like, son, like, come sit on my lap. Let me, let me tell you, hold on. <laughs> Listen, you, Adam sinned. He brought sin and suffering into the world. And with sin, not only comes suffering, but comes condemnation. And I didn't want that forever. That's why I said, lest he take from the tree of life and live forever. I kicked you all out and quarantined you under mortality so I could come and redeem mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Suffering is a grace to teach you what you're doing is wrong. Like if you put mm -hmm. your hand in the fire, it hurts, so you pull it away. Suffering is a mercy that I gave you, son. I gave Adam thorns and thistles and toil so that when he would seek identity by what he accomplished with his own two hands, it would be painful. And he would remember, I get my identity from him. Mm -hmm. I gave Eve painful childbirth because when she goes, oh, I brought life into the world. Look at me. She's going to say, no, I did it through pain. And she's going to cry out to me in that process. Pain points people to me, son. And I am life. I'm love. I'm healing. But I ended I ended the amount of time that you can suffer. I gave you death. And so that was an act of mercy. And I came and I assumed all of that. And I suffered alongside you to show I don't just understand, but I empathize. I've done it. I've carried it. And then I laid my life down to show my love. And I picked it up showing that you can trust me. And so as I come to this, I see this beautiful display of God's love. And it just starts unveiling. And I go, Oh my goodness, this is this is beautiful. It's not God can't forgive me, so he had to pour his wrath on Jesus, who is God but can forgive me. That breaks the Trinity in, in so many different ways. But instead what it was, Father God, Holy Spirit, God the Son of one mind, of one purpose, of one heart, said we are going to redeem our image bearers and we are coming to show our love and we're coming to conquer these things that marred them. And we're going to use the very weapons of the devil, suffering and death, which we gave as an act of mercy, but he turned as a means of oppression and fear and driving them away from us. I'm coming to use those things as, to bring about their redemption. And, and not only that, but I started to see that God had always freely pardoned the repentant. In Isaiah 55, 7, he goes, let the wicked forsake their way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let them come to me and I'll freely pardon them. Ezekiel says, if a wicked man turns from his wickedness and does what is right, he'll live. He's like, I, 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 don't, I don't delight in the death of anyone. Turn and live. And so I started to see that God had always forgiven, but forgiveness doesn't deal with the consequences of sin. 
So God can forgive me and leave me in the grave. God can forgive me and leave me suffering. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to restore those whom he forgives. So that's why Christ came, was as an exclamation point on, I love you and I forgive you. Here's my son. I conquered it. Case closed. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's like I know that some of the hardest times that I've ever spoken about um, Calvinism with people is I had a I had a good friend uh, talk to me one time. I think he, I think he and his wife have lost two or three children to miscarriage. Mm. And he's a he's a staunch Calvinist, and he looked at me and he said, um, "You know, I just have to ha have hope that they're the elect that God is going to save them." And like hearing someone say that was heartbreaking to me like I, I i don't like and and so you've actually kind of answered one of the questions that i wanted to ask you is you know when when which i'll restate um of course but um is like you know when when a calvinism would be asked the question of you know if you found out that one of your children whom you love dearly has been chosen for destruction how would that make you feel about god not because of anything he did but because God chose him to be destroyed, how does that shift? How does that not shift people's minds and yeah. make them go, okay, so maybe I'm missing something mm. here because I, I can't wrap my head around it. I, I, I'm going to speak from my own vantage point. I'm not going to speak for every Calvinist. I'm just going right. to speak for my warped thinking in that moment. And I may be entirely alone, but I do not believe I am. I think what you have is someone that wants the rain and the harvest and they're willing to sacrifice a child to Molech to get it. Mm -hmm. Lucky me, I'm elect. I hope you're with me, but if you're not, I'll be in heaven. I'll miss you, but I've made it. And that's a tough pill to swallow. Well, how do you swallow it? Because I like even hearing that, like that's unthinkable to me. I don't think it's on a forefront of the mind. I think it's a subconscious we're keeping it back here sort of way. Mm -hmm. And you go, well, I hope, I hope they're elect. I, I trust God, but I know he's, he's hated Esau from, you know, the eternity past and goodness, you know, maybe one of my children are Esau and one of my children are Jacob, you know, and if God hated them, you know, maybe, maybe I've got to come around and, you know, maybe when I stand there at judgment, I'll understand and I'll hate them too, because what God hates, I want to hate. And so it is self-deception. It's anesthetizing the conscience. It is condemning the innocent, which is what the Lord says is an abomination. And I think that when you engage in this sort of self-deception over and over and over and over again, um, not only are you taught badly, but then you're blinding yourself. And the danger of, of self-blinding and self-deafening is that you're the one with the on and off switch. Yeah. Someone else can come in and give you the truth. But you close your eyes to it. You shut your ears to it. And this is something that Jesus rebuked during his his day on the earth too. He's, he's like, you've hardened your ears. You, you've 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 turned your, you've closed your ears. You've closed mm. your eyes. And it, it, this was self. This was done to themselves. I thought it was so interesting that you said when you when you really had your falling out with Calvinism, you said, then why did Jesus if if Jesus came for the the why did Jesus come if we're not elect in that way, right? Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating is because I didn't come up in Calvinism, I've always understood exactly the opposite. If you are saved by sovereign foreordination, then you're not saved by the blood. There's no reason for the cross. 
<laughs> predestination. It's semantics. There's, there's yeah, a lot of really there's a lot it. of justification for it. There's a lot of they've they've had like you said they've had hundreds and in fact even a thousand years to come up with a reason for the for the vicarious substitutionary atonement. Mm -hmm. They've had hundreds of years oh. to come up with paragraphs and subparagraphs of why it is. But in all reality, if you're saved by predestination, you're not saved by the blood of Jesus. You are saved by the font of predestination, which is a very potent denial of the blood of Jesus. It's trotting the blood of Jesus. And uh, I thought it was very interesting that you brought that up because it's it just shows such an interesting shift from where you were then to where you are now. And in, in, my, in my studies, I've gone to the Hebrew views. I've gone to the early church views. I've studied the Didache, the Didache Apostolorum. I've studied Ignatius of Polycarp. And where I find myself landing now, like in a theological sense, I have a lot in common with the Eastern Orthodox, but they're uh, there, there's a there's some cultural barriers there. I have friends that are priests and and uh, and fathers in the the Eastern Orthodox Church, and they're like, "You're coming, Warren," and I'm like, "There's some major cultural differences there that I can't get over." Yeah, like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay sitting in a Baptist church and judging the rock concert I'm watching, but I don't feel comfortable in an Eastern Orthodox assembly with the the litur liturgy and and all that. It's it's a cultural thing, and I'm confessing my own uh, insecurities. But there's also some Neoplatonists, and there's there's a few doctrines there where I just can't quite get. Yeah. But much of what they say, I amen and I amen. And then I also find myself in agreement with Anabaptists. Uh, a lot of the Anabaptist tradition, I find, uh, you know, they, there's a lot of them that rejected total depravity and um, uh, some of the, the same doctrines that you see common within uh, Western Western Christianity. So I, I kind of land there, and what I've what I describe myself now is just lowercase C Catholic. So meaning I'm part of the universal body of of Christ, whether or not these jokers over here, and I mean like every other Christian. I'm not picking on one denomination or another. Butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers, or not, that's fine. If they name the name of Christ, I'll consider them a brother, whether they return it or not. I'll, I'll just I view that as kind of the weaker. The weaker brother, mm -hmm. and I'm comfortable being where I am, and I can go anywhere where Christ is being proclaimed in fellowship. Uh, so I can go to an Eastern Orthodox, I can go to a Roman Catholic, I can go to a Protestant, I can go to a Reformed, and I'll find people that truly love the Lord there. But I disagree with them on their doctrine, so I can I can fellowship with them. But at the end of the day, this is my road to walk, and I'm going to be responsible when I stand before Him and give an account for what I did. And I I'll go, Lord, you, you've shown me I was wrong here. But I was wrong. I didn't. I didn't let somebody else tell me what to think and let him get me wrong. I, I'm wrong, so I own it. But but at least at least it was my error that that got me here and not relegating it to somebody else. You know. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I take a lot of responsibility now for what I believe, and I really enjoy studying these things. It's it's really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I I really enjoy it too. Both. One of the things that. Uh, um. Zach and I kind of uh, gelled over early on was that both of us have been uh, people have told us, oh, so you're Orthodox because the way we talk about theology in certain ways. You have the Orthodox like, phronema. <laughs> we're like, no, no, not, not, not exactly. No, <laughs> but uh, that uh, I've, I've taken to talking about myself and I'm kind of like a Christian nomad, you know, mm -hmm. Abraham and his people, 
Moses and the Hebrews, they, they wandered, they, they moved, they took their tents and they walked around and they went to where mm -hmm. the, the local community was where they landed and they thrived in those places. Right. And that's kind of where I am. Cause I can't, there, there, it seems that every denomination, Calvinist, Arminian, Baptist, Lutheran, whoever, they all have kind of gelled around this idea that they're like the one true church. Mm-hmm. That their their take is the correct one of time immemorium, like, and they don't realize how much innovation happened even after the second century. Yep. You know, second century innovation okay. started booming in the church, and there there are things in the Orthodox Church where I, I look at it and I go, that was obviously a, an overreaction to heresy. Mm -hmm. There was heresy that was being spouted, absolutely, but you went too far in your correction. Yeah. And you've, you and then and then you see that grow into these giant problems that are happening within the Catholic Church, these giant problems that are happening in the Calvinist world. You know, like you you see these these responses to issues that are just inflated outlandishly. Like at the well, end you, of the you day, mentioned it, so you mentioned it in your opening about going from one extreme to another, and that was one of the things I've been very careful in my studies. I don't I'm, I don't want to have a, re, a knee-jerk reaction where it's a pendulum where Calvinism is wrong, so I've got to go to the exact what I perceive to be the polar opposite and embrace mm, right. that. For me, I was just going, okay, well, that's wrong. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean the opposite's true either. That Absolutely. that's a false dichotomy. There may be a third, fourth, fifth, tenth option, or somewhere along that paradigm. Yeah. So I was really going, and and one of the things that that irritated my wife, uh, I would I would put on a, a sermon from a guy preaching that this passage taught X and he's adamant and she'd come in and she'd hear me and I'm taking notes and I've got my Hebrew and Greek interlinear open. I'm reading three, four different translations, taking notes. An hour later, she comes back in and I'm listening to another preacher on that same passage, tell why it doesn't mean X and why it means Y. And she's like, why are you doing that? Didn't the guy just say X is true? And I go, well, it's a different guy. She's like, well, why would you listen to somebody disagree? And I go, because well, I, I want to know the truth. And she's like, that that's infuriating. That's maddening. And I was like, no, I, I, I want to be challenged. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. And so I would take notes and I would go and do the hard, heavy lifting. And and uh, and I really I, I enjoyed that. But for for probably a good year after I came out of Calvinism, it was I was so raw, like I had an exposed nerve that I would go to my Calvinist church. And I love these people like like great respect for them. You know, we went to marriage counseling with them. Uh, we did small groups with them. Uh, we would have like meals and it was just a great sense of community. My son was in a private Christian school with them. Um, so I really love these people, but I had an exposed raw nerve. And if I sat there in their service and they would preach something that I knew in my heart wasn't biblically sound, I would want to stand up and shout. And I yeah. told my wife, I was like, we're going to we're going to, we're going to get escorted out of here by security. If I keep coming back here and I'm not in a healthy state, like, like I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go and numb this, or I gotta go and, and research it, let the pain subside, you know? And so I took about a year off from, uh, not from church, but from what I would say, going to churches that were very reformed and went into kind of a cocoon and just studied the texts. And then at the end of that year, I came back and I was like, this is what I think I believe. And they're like, well, that's great, but who believed that? And I go, oh, man, I was so busy trying to figure out what the text said. I didn't look for affirmation. So then I spent another year 
studying the early church and trying to find validation. But what I didn't do, I wasn't looking back going, here's somebody that said something similar that I can reinterpret to what I want. I went back and go, were they really saying the same thing that I'm saying? Or was it just me being overzealous, trying to be affirmed, you know, and I really did try and find what this, and then at the end of that, I found like, yeah, this, this is, this is, this is historic paleo or historic, you know, primal, <laughs> primal Christianity. And they were like, okay, well, who believed that? And I go, well, Anabaptist, Eastern Orthodox, that's good company. I'm okay there. And they're like, but like James White, he's like, he's not even on the side of Rome. He's on the other side. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm more, I have more of an Eastern mentality now. I have more of a, instead of going to Augustine, I go to Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, John Chrysostom. I take the Cappadocians any day, you know, over Anselm, uh, Aquinas and Augustine. Like, let's, let's drop the hammer. Are you for the, the Christians who were fed to the lions or the one who is the most richly quoted by every single inquisitioner? Mm. Because that's who Augustine is. Yeah. Let's never forget. Never forget that before Augustine, not a single Christian ever advocated that violence from the church was okay. Yeah. But when Augustine came against the Donatists, oh man, Lord have mercy. I look at the Donatists and like, wait a minute, they kicked out the people who gave away the sacred text when they were under persecution, and then they rejected that authority because they're like, no, we're not, we're not taking that back. You you can't you can't be a coward. That's the denial of Christ. And then they said we would rather die than than join Augustine. And Augustine was like, fine, then you're gonna die. Oh, Augustine Augustine was like, yeah, you know, he's like the, you know, originally I was against violence and persecution and torture and all this, but those Donatists. Yeah, yeah, they, gotta go. they have it coming. Let's let's go hurt these guys. And he is the reason. He is the most richly yep. quoted. Of, if you want to talk about inquisitions, you want to talk about all the rotten, nasty things that gets blamed at the feet of you know, the Catholic Church has had its good and bad years, right? But yeah. all the nasty things that get laid at their church, Augustine is richly quoted. I will be on the side of the Christians who were fed to the lions uh, in the first three hundred years of the faith uh, over that. That's where I'll be. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I don't care. I don't care if they're if they had some errors in their theology. I don't care if they had some doc mm. they had pure, perfect faith. They mm. trusted in Christ as as the source of their salvation to the point to the point of death. They may not have had everything mapped out, mm -hmm. but what they did have, what they did have was enough. Yeah. What they did have was the core tenets. And Augustine comes in and goes, No, 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 no. Come on, man. Like let well, me, it's let like, me about these core tenets. to bring it back to Calvin in the same sense. Um, when I found out about his uh, little deal with Michael, uh, Michael Severus, that blew my mind. This dude, they was he, what did he end up getting beheaded or was it so on a so Servetus gets a lot of attention? Um, yeah. To the detriment of all of the other uh, victims of Geneva, but uh, Servetus was uh, non-Trinitarian. He, he had concerns yeah. about the Western articulation of the Trinity. He saw it resulting in tritheism and polytheism, and so he was writing against the Trinity. And uh, this caused some serious problems for uh, Calvin. And Calvin had, you know, tried to rebuke him. And Servetus was like, you know what? I'm coming there. I'm going to face you and we're going to hammer this out and we're going to discuss it like men. And 
Calvin's like, if he comes here, I'm not letting him escape alive. So, so Servetus comes there to confront Calvin and say, let's debate the text of scripture. Let's debate this idea. Let's see your version of the Trinity versus my con conception of God. Now, whether Servetus was right about God or Calvin in their models, the one thing that Calvin lacked was the heart of God. Because in his model, it was like, well, Father, Son, Holy Spirit comprising God, shared essence, individual persons, but no heart because yeah. he, he, he wanted to murder. He was so angry at Servetus that he said, if he comes here, he won't escape alive. Servetus comes. Calvin has him thrown in jail. And prior to this, Calvin had actually, this great reformer, had written to Rome and was like, hey, guys, he's over here. If you see him and you want to kill him, I'll give you support capture him, arrest him, kill him. He came, to, he came to Geneva instead. They put him in prison. He's taken before the council. Calvin goes, hey, buddy, uh, you know, they uh, they want to burn you at the stake, but I've asked that they cut your head off instead because uh, I'm a friend like that. I, I, I don't want you to suffer, you know? And he's like, he's like, no, no, I, I'm not. And Servitus' last words were, Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. So he had faith in Christ as son of God, right? Now, his understanding of the, the nature and the Greek philosophy and the Neoplatonic relations among the Godhead, all of that aside, he died and his last words were, Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And, the, and, and radical Trinitarians will be like, he had it coming because he said Christ, Son of God, as a last jab because he was trying to identify he wasn't God. That's like, dude, he died with Christ on his lips. I'm sorry, but like, you know, if you're murdering people because they've got something wrong on their doctrine, but their heart's in the right place, your heart is desperately wicked. And but see, the thing about the thing about Calvin's Geneva was it wasn't just servitus. Calvin had a hard time getting people into church. Like they did not want to go. And he said, Oh, these 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 pagans, these, these, these Catholics, man, I can't get them in. So what we're gonna do is if you don't attend my services regularly, you're gonna be imprisoned. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be tortured and you're going to be penalized until you get your rear ends in here and you have a seat in this chair. And so there was a heavy penalty if you missed a service, but he also had kids hands cut off. He had uh, children hung. He had uh, men and women beheaded and, and, and tortured. And, um, and there's, there's numerous reports of this. This wasn't just unique, but the thing about servitus that gets all of the attention was that, there had never been anything quite like this in that in that age to that extent. And so whenever he starts writing and boasting about having killed the heretic Servetus, there's this great and people Calvinists will go, but he didn't do it. The council did. Right. Well, it was okay. all Geneva's laws and he was it's just all, following it's all Geneva's laws. And, he did beheading instead of burning at the stake. Guy, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. And you go, you go, well, he wrote, <laughs> if he comes here, I'm not gonna let him live. And then after he died, he wrote bragging about killing him. But then this cry went out in the land and people were like, how dare you that we don't kill people over this? Like, this isn't cool. So he actually went back in and he amended and rewrote his, his section on the Institutes of the Christian Religion to, to try and smooth that out and make it a little bit better. But um, as, as Calvinists, we go, well, you know, nobody's perfect. I mean, Moses murdered, a, <laughs> Moses murdered a, a, an Egyptian, you know, and and Paul, I mean, he held the coats for Stephen stoning. You know, and, 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 and you know, uh, John Calvin, he's, he's, he's in good company. He's in good company. And so you can kind of pass it off and, 
you know, okay, Calvinism isn't all about John Calvin. Like, okay, you can have Calvin. We're going to keep the Institutes of the Christian Religion because we think it's divinely inspired and true and reliable interpretation of Scripture. And you're like, okay, cool, cool. And then we're going to also affirm that there's only a 66-book canon of Scripture. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to have our cake and eat it too. The, one of it. the neatest, one of the neatest things I heard recently. Well, I've watched his, I've watched uh, several of his lectures. Doctor Winky Prattney, who you may mm. know. Yeah, I like, I like Winky. I love Doctor Winky. He's awesome. And one of the things he talked about was there are no Calvinists today. There's Edwardian Calvinists today, and I thought that was a fascinating point to point out because Calvin's Calvinism was effectively. Uh, Unpreachable. It was unlivable. And yeah. you're, the severity of Geneva goes to help back that up. Ed, Edward, uh, John Edwards is the one who kind of reinvented Calvinism mm -hmm. for the Western world and for the Americans and, and injected evangelism. You mentioned earlier Spurgeon, and I wrote down a note because Spurgeon, though he preached extensively on Calvinism, was actually a really was a pretty poor Calvinist. He was a he was a Calvin he, by his profession. He was a Calvinist. But many of his beliefs were not not even close to being in line with. No, he was very Calvinism. inconsistent. He was very inconsistent. He he said that man's that God's sovereignty and man's free will cooperate in the salvation of man. So mm, he he had a very revivalist evangelist mindset, and that 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 yeah. kind of that kind yeah, of yeah. The reform the reform perspective is that man's free will was in bondage and and destroyed, yeah. and so you know because of sin. And uh, for 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 uh, Spurgeon to come in and say that it's working in tandem as a synergist claim, modern Calvinists today would be like, "You're a heretic. You're a Pelagian. You're a, you know, you're a synergist. You're not a true monergist." Yeah, yeah they, 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 they love the. Yeah, and uh, what's there was a great one too. Doctor Pratty brought brought up is that just the bondage of the will. That's a huge part of the of Augustine's uh, his mm -hmm. doctrine. Uh, you, Doctor Ken Wilson, who you spoke with. And read his uh, art. No, no, no. No, no. Layton, I, no that, that was Leighton. Leighton. I tried Layton. to get. I tried to yeah. get Doctor Wilson on my program, yeah. and uh, I've not been able to get in touch with him. But I did. Bring, I brought uh, Doctor Ali Bonner on. That's probably yes. And uh, that was a great one. That's a great one. The myth of Pelagianism. That's a great read. That's a great uh, point she makes. Because she has no skin in the game. She's not a theologian. She mm. was just a British historian and reading this stuff and be like, well, wait a minute. All the claims that Augustine is making about what Pelagius believes, Pelagius says he doesn't believe any of that. And it, it can be verified that he well, didn't not, believe any of that. Not only did he not believe it, but his writings were so orthodox, they were preserved because the people that were reading it thought either it was the output of Nicaea or that it was the work of Jerome. <laughs> and recently we had a, a Calvinist apologist, uh, Anthony Rogers, and he he's I think he's Presbyterian, and he was reading from a work that was entitled Jerome because it was pseudo Jerome, but it was actually August. I mean, excuse me, it was actually Pelagius. It was Pelagius so he was, yeah. he was appealing to Jerome as Orthodox. And he's like, see right here, sola fide, man, like this is Orthodox, but it was Pelagius, but it was, it was mislabeled. And so even today you have, you have Augustinians appealing to Pelagius as the standard yeah. of Orthodoxy while condemning him as a heretic at the same time. So the, the level of, of cognitive dissonance here is yeah, astounding. Wild. Yeah. Just like and you see, I remember you brought that up. Uh, Augustine was the latest at his time in a stair-stepping process of bringing this Platonic and Gnostic philosophy into the church. 
Uh, Clement of Alexandria bears a little bit of blame, let's be real, but uh, Tertullian. But uh, but one of the neat ones that Dr. Prattney brought up too, which, which I loved, and I don't remember the name of the bishop, he was refuting Origen, even though Origen believed in free will. And he said that it's not that man, the common, the consensus of the early church is man is possessed of a free will, period. That's the consensus. It's not just the consensus. You're not going to find a disagreement. And and one of the big bishops uh, in talking about origin, he said to said man is possessed of a free will. He was, I forget what he was confronting with origin, but they agreed on free will, but not on not on the parts. He said uh, man is possessed of a free will, not to choose a pre-existing evil, but that whether to obey God or disobey God is the only course. That's the orthodoxy of the of the original church. Yeah. You're you're evil or good based on whether you obey or disobey God. And not uh, you know not on the basis. And, and there's of there's a book there's a book that I'm working my way through right now, uh, by Pierre Fran Franco or Franco Beatrice called the Transmission of Sin, um, Augustine and uh, the Early Church's views. And one of the arguments that he makes in there is essentially that that some of the concepts that Augustine used to formulate original sin. Uh, were already accepted in certain, um, oh, what's the term I'm looking for? Kind of ascetic, um, that, that culture of North Africa. Uh, some of these views were already being uh, accepted. And so mm -hmm. he said that what you have is uh, Orthodox Christianity. And I, I don't want to say he said this. The way I'm interpreting his, his, his writings thus far, my conclusions of his work, is that you have this historic continuation of the Jewish view of the nature of man, kind of like a Yetzer, good desires, bad desires is really how you use them. Um, and you have to rule over those or they'll rule over you, right? Mm -hmm. um, versus this kind of Gnostic influenced view of the, the, the nature of man. And so you have that culminating in, in Augustine versus Pelagius, but mm -hmm. that Augustine was taking bits and pieces of, from those that agreed with him or he agreed with them cobbling that together into um, an, a formulation of original sin. Meanwhile, in order to smear uh, Pelagius, he was taking uh, bits of heresy that he had heard floating around, cobbling them together, repackaging it, and saying Pelagius affirmed it when we, we know he did not. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a very interesting book. Like I said, I'm, I'm still making my way through it. But uh, it's an expensive purchase. But if anybody's really like a theological geek or, or nerd, I recommend getting Dr. Ali Bonner's The Myth of Pelagianism and then uh, Pierre Franco Beatrice's work on Augustine. Those are phenomenal. I, I definitely need to pick them up. Me and uh, both Zach and I are doing a, our master's degree right now. So we're definitely Bible nerds. Mm. That's that's the least of what we are, I think. <laughs> um, but we've had about an hour 20. So let's start wrapping it up and move into the Because I want to talk to you about... Uh, like certain things that I've had, I, I don't want to say revealed to me, like I'm some kind of prophet or anything like that, but things the angel Moroni with a golden yes. tablet has appeared to you. <laughs> <laughs> some of the things that through my study of um, the Bible and the cultural context in which it was written have kind of just blown my mind. And mm -hmm. I, I want to, I, I kind of want to talk about some of that stuff uh, in the after show. But um, before I do that, um, do you have any extra, any additional questions you want to throw his way, Zach, before we, before I ask um, him my big question and maybe one stupid one? 
Um, no, I was writing down some notes here, and I think we really you did you did such a great job, man. Of um, when you were given your own story of covering some of those different types of issues, so I think uh, that was really pretty strong. All right, so I'll ask you a stupid question, and then I'll ask you the question of the show. Um, but stupid question is, I mean, you're not a Calvinist anymore, so your 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 answer may have changed, but. Uh, since then, but is uh, a hot dog a sandwich? And how does Ooh. Calvinism or non-anti-Calvinism fit into this? I think that a, a hot dog is a sandwich. I'm going to take that Thank controversial you. stance, but I mean, it's, you. you know, uh, I think it is a sandwich um, in, in in the same way that, um, you know, a, a taco could technically be considered a, a sandwich. Um, how does How does Calvinism fit into this? Um, I think I think Calvinism. Uh, I, I don't use it as a litmus test to right. say if you affirm Calvinism, okay. you're not a Christian, because I think Calvinism is a form of Christianity. I think it still maintains some of those key focuses on Christ, but it adds uh, a little bit of let's let's say. And I'm very polemical, and I try not to be, but well, my Genesis God, was polemical. I'm just I'm just going to rip the bandaid off. <laughs> if 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 uh, Christianity is the hot dog, uh, Calvinism is the arsenic relish, and so <laughs> it's sprinkled on top. There's still Christianity mm. there, but if you're not careful, you consume too much of one rather than the other. It can be fatal. Well, mm. and it's not even to mention that anytime you hear an atheist talking about everything they hate about Christianity and God, it's all out of the institutes of Calvin. Like yeah. every time, like I, when I, I'm ooh. dealing with my atheist friends and, and apologetics, I give them a non-Western historic view of Christianity. And you know what they tell me? That's beautiful. But I don't think that's actually correct because I've grown up in America and I know what Christianity is because I'm a product of that Roman mindset. And uh, I, I was I was raised in the, the Presbyterian Church of America. and I was raised in Roman Catholicism. I was raised Baptist. I, like I was and they have that that mindset, and uh, but I think I think the East has has got some some beautiful things that we need to consider. Theosis, man, that, mm. yeah, some beauty there, man. Partaking, partaking in the nature of God. That's beautiful stuff. Beautiful. Yeah. So what you're saying is that if you're a Calvinist, then you would consider a hot dog not a sandwich because God determined that you would think that way before the beginning of time. Yeah, you're not free to make up your own mind. You can only think what was determined eternally. Mm. Yeah, Your thoughts, if you're a Calvinist, you believe your thoughts are necessary eternally. Otherwise, God would be wrong. So it's essential. You, you fall into necessaryism. Uh, but anyway, we, we, could, we could go down that route later. <laughs> so... I'll ask you the big question. This show really, it really changed a couple of years ago. Um, but one of the big reasons it was in the middle of the COVID thing is when we shifted away from politics and crap like that. Thank God. I like, I've never been more free than exercising, exercising like an exorcist, not, you know, working out, not working this out of my life, but getting rid of it really helped things. But we, I, I made the shift in the middle of the COVID world and, um, one of the things that I unfortunately noticed and knew is I, I knew a lot of friends who lost family members. One of one of my friend's brother brothers during the COVID deal had was a drug addict, like a bad drug mm. addict, and he got out of drugs. He was he had a, he got a brand new job. Things were looking up for him. He was ready to take on life, and then COVID came and he lost his job, 
and not three weeks later was he dead man through suicide and so I, I we entered into this new phase where we're talking about the ultimate hope we're talking about jesus we talk about other things too it's not just that but one of the things i really wanted to make this show about was hope because we have hope and uh so the last question i ask every guest at least the first time if not every time they come is uh, we want to share hope so right now in your life it could be in your home local global national whatever what is something that is bringing you hope and motivating you to carry on doing what you're doing and living a life that you want to live oh man um it's a big one isn't it <laughs> well there there there's a lot that i want to say and there's some things that i'm just prohibited from at this time um and that that could open a can of worms so so what i'll say what i'll say is um the, the thing that the thing that gives me hope is knowing that I serve the the living and holy God, the God of you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish. But not only this, but that when we see him, we'll be like him. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll see him as he is. He 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 picked up our 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 image, our nature to redeem it, to elevate it. And I get to spend eternity not in some static, frozen state of perfection, but but I get to spend eternity in a living, vibrant relationship with God and the the brothers and sisters that that I will have this profound relationship with forever and and see and do amazing amazing things daily, minute by minute. That's very exciting from a from a uh, point of view of the now, uh, my children, my five amazing children. I've got one son, four daughters, and uh, I work extremely hard for them. I want them to know that their daddy loves them, that he values them as people, that they have infinite worth and potential, that they're the main character in their story. And they get to determine if they're Skeletor or He-Man. They get to determine the substance and content of their character, and they're going to be held accountable for what they do. But if they serve the living God, if and when they make a mistake, they can say, Dad, I'm sorry, and he will forgive them, and he will restore them, and he will make it right. And so I have this driving purpose to show my children what a man of God is, um, to make sure that I'm uh, building them up in the faith that I'm preparing them for the adversity that is inevitable and that I'm not telling them to be afraid, but instead I'm telling them to burst those throne door, those throne room doors open, run in, jump up on daddy's lap and say, dad, we need to talk because that's the kind of relationship that we have with our heavenly father. It's not just a God of thunderbolts and lightning or a King who's made a declaration to crush us, but this is the God of the universe and we can come in and we can talk to him. Yep. So I'm trying to instruct my kids in, in that. And, and that's what gives me hope is that they'll live better, more rewarding, richer lives than I, because they'll gain wisdom from my successes and mistakes. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I have I have five children as well. Oh, cool. Um, and with one on the way. But I also Whoa, you got me. Did a little snip, I did a little snippety snip a couple weeks ago. So that's that, that that's come and gone. It's over now. Um, but. I know I appreciate all of that because it's 
you know, it's wild. My parents did a considering everything that went on. They did a pretty good job. Like I did, I wasn't so far off the mark that I was questioning God, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I knew him like he, they, he, they genuinely introduced me to Jesus. And so I just want to be able to do the same thing, but maybe with just a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more, you know, giving them what they need to actually have these conversations. Um, but uh, I'll bring I'll bring Zach back as soon as the camera starts back up. I don't know what happened there. Uh, but before we move into the last bit of the the after show, I do want to let everyone know where to find you. Uh, so all I have written down is you are on Twitter at the underscore idle underscore killer and on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash idle killer. Is there anything yeah. else that you want to share with people? Uh, idle is not like I'm not doing much like IDLE, but it's actually like like a false idol IDOL killer. Um, and that was, that came about just simply because I had so many false idols in my own life and that the truth of scripture set me free. So I yeah. view, I view Christ as the ultimate idol killer. So even though, even though my handle on Twitter says the idol killer, that's not a reference to me. That's right. a reference to the most high. <laughs> so some people will say, they'll introduce me as the idol killer. And I always, I always struggle a little bit because it's like, yeah, that's my handle, but really Christ is the idol killer. He's the living God. You know, he smashes that with, uh, with truth and love, but uh, yeah, YouTube idol killer, Twitter, idol killer, idolkiller.com. I don't update like I should, but eventually I do. Um, and you can find me on, uh, on pretty much any sort of social, uh, Facebook as well. TikTok. Well, no, <laughs> I don't do TikTok. I don't do Instagram. Um, I am, I am a little, I am in my mid forties. And uh, I find I find all of that to be a little daunting. So I'm not quite up to speed as I should. Yeah. Uh, well, and since it, Zach is working on it, uh, hopefully we'll be we'll see. Us. There's there's a bit of face. Uh, can't hear him. There we go. There we yeah, go. We had a little. Bit uh, if you want to find if you want to find Zach, you can find him at the muted flag everywhere. YouTube.com slash the muted flag. Twitter and TikTok the muted flag. Do you have anything else? Uh, that's really it right now. I, I might start stepping up uh, Facebook per, uh, presence again because uh, some people in my local community have been asking me about that. But uh, as of right now, that's it. You know, YouTube, uh, Twitter, and also uh, TikTok. All Chinese right. clock well, app. I will uh, tell you guys what's coming up in the future, all my stuff, and then we'll we'll hit the, the last call. Uh, so you people who are watching and want to watch more stuff with me and I don't know why you would uh, next week. I'm going to be talking again to miss Naomi, Wright, Who grew up as the daughter of a, um, a cult leader. And she got out of that and is still Christian. And she currently works to help people who have experienced spiritual abuse. She has mm-hmm. a ministry dedicated to that. So uh, she came on wants to tell her story. Now we're going to talk about what she does now and how she helps people and we're going to talk about spiritual abuse walk through that whole deal uh, it should be a good one that'll be next week for patrons tuesday everyone else thursday um for me if you want to find me if you want to see pictures of presidents with mullets or supervillains or whatever the whatever's on my mind uh, at the time you can go to twitter at him carlos um, if you would like to see the extended episodes and early episodes patreon.com slash the mad ones if you want a t-shirt a mug uh, president poster we are the mad ones.com slash store 
um, if you would if you're watching this right now and you think, wow, his voice is pretty good, but why does he look like that? You can listen instead by going to wearethemadones.com or any of your favorite podcatchers. Um, and then if you're if you're thinking, man, that sultry voice must be attached to a good looking face, you're wrong. But youtube.com slash the mad ones or rockfin.com slash the mad ones. Uh, that is all of those things. So with that, we're gonna move into last call. And uh, as always, my dear friends, you have a chance to be a light in the world. So go light it up.